Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Lily Nakai and her family lived in Southern California, where sometimes she and a friend dreamed of climbing the Hollywood sign that lit the night sky. At age 10, believing that her family was simply going on a camping trip, she found herself living in tar-papered barracks, nightly gazing out instead at a searchlight. She wondered if anything would ever be normal again. In her creative memoir, Lee Havey uh, combines storytelling, watercolor, and personal photographs to recount her youth in two Japanese-American internment camps during World War II, one in California, the other in eastern Colorado. Short vignettes and snapshots of people, recreated scenes and events, a 10-year-old girl develops into a teenager while confined. These stories of love, loss, and discovery recall a girl balancing precariously between childhood and adolescence. Lily Havey now lives in Salt Lake City, and her memoir is Gasa Gasa Girl Goes to Camp, an Issei Youth Behind a World War II Fence. It's out from University of Utah Press. And uh, Lily Havey joins us from uh, KUR Studios in Salt Lake City. Lily Havey, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I understand that um, this whole project started with watercolors. And uh, but maybe tell us the story. You, you began, uh, and this is, of course, many years after your experience living in these internment camps, um, I guess, reading stories of, of soldiers and symptoms of PTSD, and, and you thought, well, I, I might have some of these symptoms. Yeah, way back in, I guess I was in my 50s, and I started reading about soldiers that had been coming back with PS, post-traumatic PTSD, and how they were cured of it by recreating the, um, the scenes that they had undergone during the war, kind of over and over and over again, the sounds and the sights. And so then I began wondering whether this was something that I had in, in a minor way because I'd always been bothered by bright lights, by sudden noises by even soft noises, but especially artificial lights, which then translated into the searchlights in um, both Amachi and Santa Anita Assembly Center, which where we were at the very beginning because Amachi hadn't been built yet. And so then I thought, well, um, how do I find out? And I started painting watercolors, and that's where it all began. I wonder if you could, uh, let's uh, have you read something from the book. This is from page 9. And this is, we're skipping a, a bit ahead in the story, which is fine. You're, you're in Amachi. Uh, no, this, um, this is, this is um, Santa Anita Racetrack. Oh, this is Santa, Santa Anita. Okay, Santa so Anita Assembly Center. Okay, so we're not skipping ahead as, as much. It's, um, no. So uh, I wonder if you could read this for us. Sure. You have to have a little picture, though, of the watercolor here. And it's essentially a black and white, black and red and white painting with searchlights just blaring down. But the searchlight lights are red. And they... Um, 
in a way, represent blood, because at the bottom of the painting, I have skulls and skeletons in white, and one of the skeletons is holding a surrender flag. And this was because of my fear of being um, killed in camp, because I had heard that this happened sometimes, that the guards got trigger-happy and killed people if they got too near the fence or walked around at night. But at the top of the painting, I have a church with a, a yellow sun and a gold cross on top of the church, which represents really a kind of optimism that maybe something will go right. But the little short story, that image that you are talking about is one where one night I had to get up and go to the bathroom, and the barracks were, the, the, the uh, bathroom was about three barracks away. It was a strange night. Searchlights swept our window. Sometimes the light flooded the room, outlining our cots against the slatted walls. Then they drained away again, leaving ghostly images. Sometimes the light seeped in slowly, probing like a gelatinous creature. Sometimes the streams of light appeared red, resembling blood washing the walls. Light, dark, light, dark, over and over again throughout the night. Footsteps passed by, some marching angrily, some shuffling quietly. Voices from all directions disturbed my sleep. They mumbled they cried. Babies wailed. Skeletons lay beneath the barrack. A bony hand thrust up a white surrender flag. Pine sap oozed from the fresh-cut lumber, and its sharp tang enveloped me. When I awoke, I found beads of pitch tangled in my hair. Morning was a confusion of banging doors, bawling babies, shouts in Japanese and English, a search for toothbrushes and towels, and a dash for the bathroom. <clears throat> My father did not get up. We tiptoed out. Clangs and bongs assaulted us. Each mess hall had its own signal, Morse codes ringing from all sectors of the camp. But we go to eat and then come back, and we find that my father is still in bed. Uh, that my father is now gone, and we wonder where he is. My mother clipped, well, it's better that he's gone. Better that he's gone? What did she mean? This man was my father. He belongs with us here. I felt that he was becoming less a person and more that number, 18286, a total stranger. My father's spirit seemed to have vanished. No, it wasn't just Daddy. All of us were gone. Physically, true, we had left our lives in Los Angeles, but this empty feeling emerged from a space deep inside my body. It welled up and spread like a chill and infected my entire being, except there was nothing there, gone. The word itself was so empty and final, gone. Hmm, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. So you were, you were 10 when yes. you went, went into the camp, and, and essentially you know, grew up to become a teenager 
during your time in the camps. Uh, I wonder, before we go back in time to, to uh, and I want to have you recount life before the camps, um, this process of remembering, uh, you, you started to think, well, I've got some symptoms perhaps of PTSD, and I can get these out through these watercolors. Um, was that a successful process? Was it well, painful? I, what, what was that process like? Well, this very first painting that I did, the, the one that I was uh, just reading about, was quite astonishing because I was surprised that I would paint the, the searchlights red, you know, blood coming out. And when you're talking about did it work, it's still an ongoing process. I think I still have some paintings there, but they're not angry uh, and they're not scared really anymore. It's kind of, oh, um, I need to paint some incidences that I have written about here, uh, like there's one about some Navajo women who had climbed on the train at a stop. And I don't know whether this is really a dream or whether this happened. And I would really like to paint these women. So, like I say, it's just really ongoing. Hmm. And, and I'm curious, the years intervening, you, you know, you got out of the camps, 1945, I expect, uh, and, and went to, to life in, in Salt Lake City, and off you go. Um, did you, I guess along with many other people, repress a lot of this? What, what did you do with this in, in the meantime? These experiences, these feelings, this, this <laughs> anger, this whatever well, it was. Well, I was 10 years old, and so a lot of it was adventurous. You know, it wasn't as if I were like, I'm 82 now, and I, I'm thinking... What would have been like if I had been 82? You know, the, the experience would have been completely different. But after the war, my parents particularly, or my parents and everybody else were so busy um, just getting on with their lives and trying to make enough money to live that they didn't really have time to ponder all of this. And... Uh, during the time that we were there, like I say, I was really young. Um, I, I wasn't aware of civil rights, and it wasn't until I was an adult into my 20s that I started thinking about the injustices that had been done. There's a scene in, in the book, um, you're in Santa Anita, I believe, at this point, and you go to school. Yes. And you pledge allegiance Yes. To the, to they have, and of course, from this vantage point, uh, you know that that just, you know, there, there's a whole lot of levels to that. I wonder what you were feeling as a as a ten year old girl. It's just just normal. It was or? just yeah. Well, this was just something you were supposed to do, and I'm sure if I had been a little bit older, even a few years older, I would have done as some of the uh, boys did in my story. They just refused to do that, and they um, turned their backs and walked away. What was the consequence so, for that? Was it punishment? They did, no, nothing happened to them. Mm, yeah. yeah I, I guess people realized that, you know, it would have started a riot. Yeah. And you can understand, you understand their reaction. As your father says and at some point in the book, you know, he's, he's angry about the whole situation. 
And he, and he says what many, I'm sure, parents in that situation said, you too, meaning you and your brother, are American citizens. Yeah, he, my father didn't really talk to me a lot, but that one time when he said, you know, look at us, look, look at us, we are American citizens and look at what the government is doing to us. And the relocation really defeated my father. I mean, I, th- I think he just, he drank a little bit in Los Angeles and this exacerbated it. And he became an alcoholic, full-blown, never really got out of that. Hmm. Never, you know, never got help. The, oh, he never did? Hmm. No, my mother tried, um, but no, he, he, he never did. Yeah. There's a scene in the book that, it, and it's, you know, I guess a typical teenager, it's from your point of view at that time, where you're, you're angry at his drinking buddy. This is, I think, near the time when you're getting out of the camp in Colorado. And, and, but, but then you're able to process, no, it's my, it's, my father made these choices. He just chose to drink with this, this other man. Um, I wonder, I wonder, um, uh, so the, 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 I'm curious about what other people were saying, especially as when you got to Colorado, uh, to the, how do you pronounce it again, Amachi mm-hmm. uh, camp? And this is in eastern Colorado. In fact, it's southeastern, southeastern, yeah. some 15 miles. In fact, you take a trip uh, later with your son, Michael, and you've always wanted to get to K- Kansas. Kansas, I guess, for you meant freedom. Yes. You're looking out through the fence, and you can imagine this other state, and that means freedom. And you're able to go later on. Your, your son takes you. He says it's, it's just 15 miles away. Yes. Um, so what were, the, what were the attitudes of the other people in the camp, especially the adults? Did, did they share your father expressed at least this one time? You know, he says, I didn't come to America to live in a place like this, quoting stuff like pigs in pens. Um, <laughs> Well, there, there, were, there were apparently two sides to the story. One were, really were in the majority, where they're talking about gambarut, gaman, which are two words that are still used in Japan a lot. Gaman is to, well, you suck it in, and you take what comes, and you gambaru, you rally, no matter what the circumstances are. And so this is how, you know, the people were. They, they followed very well. But there was also the group of dissidents that were pretty much looked down upon. And the local Japanese American Citizens League was always on the side of obeying the law. And the, there, there always seemed to be a conflict between Come on and do that, and the people that um, that rallied to to dissent, and I, I remember really kind of vaguely the riot that happened in Santa Anita, and I have a section in my book on that about um, the group of people who who dissented and they were put into a special camp in Northern California because of this. 
So th- there has al- there are always been yays and nays. There were the no-no boys who signed the the well. There was a form that all the men were supposed to sign about being loyal to the United States and being uh, never well cutting themselves off really from Japan. And some of them said, "Well, how could we do this?" Because our parents are still Issei. They couldn't own land. They couldn't become citizens. I mean, it's like cutting cutting off part of our family, and they wouldn't sign. And so there were the people who said that, well, these were traitors. Yeah, just, just a, a horrible situation to, to be in to make to, yes. have to make those decisions. Yeah, We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll go back to the beginning, uh, life before the war. Then Pearl Harbor happens, and and uh, the fears nationwide that that happen, and uh, of course we're still asking ourselves as a nation how this could happen. But uh, many Japanese were rounded up and herded into these camps. Lily Havy was one of these when she was ten years old. Uh, she thought, I guess, mercifully perhaps, that the uh, family was just going on a camping trip. It ended up being a camp in Santa Anita, and then they were transferred out to uh, southeastern Colorado near Kansas, the Amachi camp. That's where she spent the bulk of the, the war years. Her book is Gasa Gasa Girl Goes to Camp, a Nisei Youth Behind a World War II Fence, out from University of Utah Press. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Lyric Rep, presenting The Elephant Man, July 9 through August 1st. The story of John Merrick, treated first as a fairground freak because of his deformed body, and later exploited more subtly by Victorian society. Ticket details at art.usu.edu slash lyric. BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Ross Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world. And this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Lily Havey, who lives in Salt Lake City. Uh, She's written an interesting new book based on her experiences in an internment camp, uh, mostly in Colorado during World War II. The book is Gasa Gasa Girl Goes to Camp, a Nisei Youth Behind a World War II Fence. Lee Havy and her family were rounded up along with many Japanese and Japanese-Americans um, and uh, sent to camps during World War II. That's a uh, story well-known. This is a very interesting uh, book from the point of view of a uh, young teenager. She was 10 years old when this happened and uh, grew into a teenager in that Colorado camp. And uh, years later, she uh, thought, perhaps I have some symptoms of PTSD. Perhaps I can work through this through art. That she did. And this uh, book has, in fact, started with watercolors, and then she added narrative. This is out from University of Utah Press. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. 
Uh, so, Lily Habe, I wonder, along with many Japanese, the, this this generation, the first generation Issei, why did your parents come to America? What were they searching for? New opportunities? What was the impetus? Yeah, the, uh, both of them. Yeah, my my father f- looked for bigger opportunities. He was essentially, uh, well, he was left in uh, Japan while his parents came to America to search for a better life. They were poor farmers. And so when my father came when he was 12, he had hoped that, of course, he would you know, become rich and uh, find this great life. And my mother had had seen and read about the purple the majestic the majestic mountains and the trees that grew money paved with gold this was an idea that people had in japan <laughs> well yeah i mean i'm i'm sure part of it they realized it was a fantasy you know because People know that money doesn't grow on trees, but this is what they heard. And yes, they wanted this better life. And I think all the immigrants come to America because of that. Even now, you know, this is happening every day. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, I guess every immigrant sort of has a dilemma, especially children of immigrants. And that, that would have applied to you, I suppose, and your brother. Uh, did you feel yourself American? Were you Japanese? What was? What did your parents <laughs> want you to feel? That was a dilemma, like you say. I was always told by my mother that I was Japanese, and yet I wasn't because I'd never been to Japan. I didn't know the country, and I grew up speaking English, listening to Japanese, but speaking Japanese, speaking English, and went to American schools. And so this, this is a, a thread that runs through the book about being Japanese, being American, which side am I on? Um, and during the war, uh, we were prevented. We couldn't write to my uh, relatives in Japan. So, of course, my parents... My mother worried a great deal about what was happening there, and eagerly when she, when we finally got out and were able to correspond, you know, to find out what happened to them, and wondered whether she ought to uh, maybe move back for a while to help them. Hmm. And and your mother's family, I think, lived at least some of them near Hiroshima. So there's a whole other level. Yes. Yeah, uh, and uh, l- later on we'll get into uh, I think how you close the book. You you go back to Japan with your mother. Uh, so I guess that one of the key questions would be loyalties. The, yes. The, the whole reason why these Japanese Americans, including yourself and your family, were herded into these camps was a suspicion about loyalties. Did Did you ever hear of anyone uh, anyone in in your in the group in your in your community? There, loyal to Japan there, after the war started? Oh, there, there were, particularly in Santa Anita, I remember that um, my father, they, they came around with uh, questionnaires, and 
I found that my father had actually requested that our family be taken to uh, Japan because of the way that we were treated. But later, when we got to Amachi, he changed his mind because he felt that you know, it would really be better to stay here. Mm. That came as a kind of surprise. Mm-hmm. It was, it was uh, a governmental form that I found Interesting. later on. Yeah. I got, that, that was a question. Do you, you want to go back to Japan? or Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, what about before the war, as things heat up, uh, you know, the Japanese army is on the march, doesn't necessarily have a beef with America. America is, a lot of Americans are just trying to stay out of it. Um, but, and then Pearl Harbor happens. That's when the, the you could call it hysteria, uh, happens. And, and the same thing that happened to the Japanese did not happen to German Americans or Italian Americans. Well, we look different. Oh, it was, uh, you think that's the reason? <laughs> that's one of the reasons, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I really think that. Um, you look a little different, then people treat you differently. But um, also, the um, farmland in Northern California that the Japanese had developed out of the desert area, you know, beyond the mountains, which is now, of course, very fertile land. And I think this was coveted. I mean, I heard that there's a lot of political machinations going on. Hmm. I can't prove it. Yeah. And uh, as you said earlier in the program, you were 10 years old. You, yes. you know, you're not thinking about geopolitics. No, I'm not. Uh, you're just, uh, your family's just uprooted and, and, and off you go. Um, but later on, do you, I don't know, you thought through these things? Do, do, you st- do you have anger about this? What do you, what do you feel now? No, I don't, I don't feel angry. I mean, I feel like what I did when I was in that, in that position. And I find it a lot, I find a lot of incidents ironic. Like one of the sections in the book that I write about in Santa Anita are where the women are making camouflage nets for the American army. And this is the American army that is out there bombing my the relatives of these people making these. And I, I don't, you know, I, I didn't um, realize that at the time. And when I look back on it, I think, oh, isn't that ironic? Isn't that funny? But no, I'm not angry. That's a, that's another level to this. I think we don't think about sometimes. At least I don't. You're in the camps. There's a lot of injustice, and in fact, the the U.S. government finally, many years later, um, you know, issued an apology. But but you're worried also about relatives back in Japan. Yes, they're on the other side of the war. Yeah. Yes. What to what ha- what happened to your relatives? Did you have relatives die in the war over in Japan? No, but. I had two cousins who died of radiation poisoning from the bomb. Hmm. And then when, when you and your mother went back, you, you have a, a picture here, the, the caption I found interesting, uh, um, that your mother did not recognize Hiroshima. Essentially, Hiroshima was totally destroyed, wasn't it? That's right. And this has become a new city now. So the, the city that she knew was, was just totally gone. Yeah, it was just gone. I mean, it was not 
I guess it was really not home to her, but then she, her family um, lived outside in the suburbs. They were 30 miles out. So, you know, the bomb did not affect that area. But she said, you know, she didn't remember the city at all. Yeah. Let me have you read uh, another passage, if I could. Uh, this is uh, page, there's a watercolor, page 36. Uh, d- describe this for me uh, first. The one about the searchlight? Yes, yes. The, there's a little girl. This is in Santa Anita. And I had to get to the bathroom one night, and I got into the light. Uh, the guard trained his light on me as I walked down the... Uh, I was going to say aisle, but it's not an aisle, between the barracks. And this is also very interesting because once I got back, it seemed like a dream that this really hadn't happened. And as I read this over and over again, I think, gosh, maybe I'm just making this up. But I think this is what one of the things that happens with the post-traumatic stressed uh, soldiers that come back is that by recreating these incidences their fear and their anger grows less and less but and you, um, you, you before you read this um you in the caption it's interesting your husband years later oh <laughs> <laughs> made a comment maybe you could talk about that yeah he said uh you know, maybe the maybe he was just trying to uh, maybe he was just trying to light your way and help you. Yeah, which is possible, I suppose. But as a little girl, you're afraid, and you've heard tales that people, you know, get killed. You're oh, you're yeah. very afraid. Oh yeah. yeah, I was I was really scared. I I really thought that he was going to shoot. Yeah. Uh, so I'll have you read this passage. Okay. One night, I awoke with an urgent need to use the bathroom. The toilets were four barracks away. I peered out the window. A door banged. A dog barked. A dog? Pets weren't allowed. It began to howl. A man called out, then silence. A child cried out, Mama, Mama. Footsteps passed beneath my window. Maybe if I concentrated, thought about something else, I wouldn't have to go. Was the soldier in the tower moving the searchlight all night long? Was he alone? No use. I had to get to the toilet. I felt for my shoes, slipped them on, and padded outside. It was only a few steps from the corner of our barrack. Then wham! A brilliant light slammed into me. For a second, I didn't know what it was. It felt like a physical blow. I whirled around and started back to our room. No, I couldn't go back. I wet my pants. My heart pounded. The spotlight seared my face. Step by step, another step. When I finally reached the bathroom, I was trembling. I pressed against the door. Calm down. He won't shoot. Even in my hurry, I remembered my mother's warning. Dirty germs on toilets. You can get something and die. I swiped the seat with paper and laid them laid some sheets before sitting down, and I sat a long time, hoping that the soldier would forget about me. 
Naked toilet bowls squatted in a row like upside-down plungers ready to suck all the darkness into the sewers. A faucet dripped into a metal sink with a hollow echo. A cockroach scuttled across the floor. How to get back? Wait until the light rake passed, then dash and stay close to the barracks? If I screamed, would someone rescue me? I took a deep breath and opened my mouth to make a sound, but nothing came out, just a week. <laughs> I had to go back. I cracked open the door. The light swept by. Could I sneak along and sidestep against the barracks? I recalled my mother's remark that she could be a troublemaker. Well, I wasn't making trouble now. I hadn't done anything wrong. The guard had no reason to shoot. My heart was pounding. I was scared, but I also resented the guard and the intrusion of the light. I flung open the door and strode into the center of the beam. Walk normally. Don't look scared. The guard trained the light on me. I walked back step by anxious step down the middle of the road. It was so far. Four barracks felt like a mile. As soon as I reached my barrack, the spotlight swept past and into the hollow black. I was still alive. I climbed into bed. Had it been real? Was I dreaming? No. The searchlight still blinked across the window over and over. I closed my eyes. The rhythm flickered against my eyelids, light, dark, light, dark. The beat went on and on. When I fell asleep, I dreamed about hovering above an ocean. Skeletal fish lay inert, then thrashed about as predators nibbled away at them. A soldier shot at the fish with a pop gun. I dropped into the water and sank slowly into its layers of water. Clear, muddy, clear, muddy. I rocked as if I were in a cradle. Hmm. Beautiful. The, the writing is, the experience is, is, is very, very uh, frightening for you. Uh, that was taking a lot of courage for a, a young girl to, to step into that searchlight. Well, it was. And, you know, it, it, was, it was frightening. I, I didn't know what to do. And those searchlights were really bright. You, you said that's one of the symptoms you noticed later on, later years, bright lights. Bright lights. I yeah. still don't like bright artificial lights. Mm -hmm. I wonder, uh, we're going to take a break here coming up pretty quick, but I wonder, you write about many reactions to this experience, which is a pretty harrowing experience. So people uprooted from their lives, and you're, you're thrown eventually into uh, southeastern Kansas, or southeastern Colorado near Kansas. Um. In your own family, your your father, I guess, sort of sunk into depression. Your mother, on the other hand, uh, seemed to sort of find herself an inner strength. I think so. Um, after all, for one thing, you know, she didn't have to cook anymore. There wasn't any grocery store, grocery shopping to do. Um, she also became a sensei, a teacher. She was one of the two sewing school teachers in camp, and this, this made her a more esteemed person, which then really was good, I think, for her self-esteem. 
Mm-hmm. And in fact, she had this goal uh, following the war. She started making plans, and uh, one of yes. her goals was to, to do sewing. And yes. she had it in her mind. She and the family's going to go to Salt Lake City. Why? Why Salt Lake? When President Roosevelt signed the uh, presidential order to round up the Japanese, we were given 10 days before they started uh, the evacuation for people to find places to go inland. And my uncle and aunt, my uncle worked for an import company, and his boss, Japanese, said, well, I'll go ahead and see if we can find a place to live. And so he came to Salt Lake. He, he scouted out quite a few places, but uh, Salt Lake said, sure, you know, we have some Japanese here. They were all LDS, though. So that, that's another kind of a division that happened in uh, Salt Lake. But uh, uh, a, div- a division? A division between the um, the Japanese community. Oh, okay. There were the uh-huh. LDS community. There the LDS Japanese who were already here, and then kind of the immigrant Japanese who came from another place. I and, see. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, they they formed a caravan of ten cars because it was too dangerous to drive alone, and they came to Salt Lake, and so. They found us a little house on the west side when it was uh, when the war was over. Hmm. Uh, I hadn't known this this, this history. That uh, I guess they, if, if you could find a place in the interior, yes. you were you were you were free to yeah. try to go find a place. Right. Well, we had we had no resources. We didn't have the money to do that, and uh, some people did though. Yeah. You know? And and that again is a. Sort of an outrageous part of the story, isn't well, it? Well, yeah, it the is. Loyalty was suspect, but you were okay in the interior. I guess the, the harder the yeah. Japanese invaded to to have a fifth column that far in. <laughs> that yeah, that's right. Yeah, you could go to Nevada or, or Colorado or yeah. That was that was the other weird thing is that you could even move to Colorado where there was a camp in Colorado. And apparently, uh, for your father kept leaving camp, I guess, for jobs elsewhere. Yes, he was. He was able to yeah. do this. Yeah. Um, shortly, I mean, there's manpower shortage, and so the um, there, there was a, a call for jobs for uh, people to go out and and uh, do farming, do labor. Uh, cannery work. A lot of them became chick sexers, which is an interesting term. What's that? <laughs> it does sound intriguing. Maybe a little naughty. What, uh, uh, what, what is that? You took little chickens, little baby chicks, as they were pretty much born, and you figured out if they were roosters or hens. Oh, okay. You, you became an expert on... You became an expert on sexing chicks. Or... And, your, and your father did this? <laughs> he went out, uh-huh. and uh, yeah, he, he tried it for a little while, but he didn't like it. So. Yeah, yeah, interesting. <laughs> but there, were, there were a lot of calls for domestic work, for mm-hmm. instance. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking, you know, 
That'd be an interesting thing to put on your tax form, under your occupation. Yeah, you know? it's uh, We're going to take another brief break. When we come back, we'll uh, learn about more about life in, in the camps from the perspective of a, of a young teenage girl. Uh, Lily Havey ended up in Salt Lake City. And uh, looking back, trying to process through what she saw as some symptoms, perhaps, of PTSD from her experiences, she began uh, doing watercolors. And then that expanded into a narrative. And we have this now out from University of Utah Press. Gasa Gasa Girl Goes to Camp, a Nisei Youth Behind a World War II Fence. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering plattered cookies and brownies, sandwiches, and boxed lunches. Information at crumbbrothers.com. And Logan Regional Hospital Foundation hosting the annual Cash Grand Fondo bike ride through Cash Valley, beginning at Logan Regional Hospital on July 12. Registration information available at cashgrandfondo.com. This is Lloyd Berenson, Director of the Bear River Health Department. Knowing the current air quality conditions allows you to better plan your day to protect your health. Keeping up to date on the local air quality is important for everyone, but it is most important for those that are most vulnerable to air pollution, such as children, those with heart or lung disease, and the elderly. The Utah Department of Environmental Quality publishes current air quality for most of the state at airquality.utah.gov. You can also sign up to receive email alerts when there is an air action alert in your county with wood-burning restrictions and recommendations for using alternative transportation. By checking the air quality regularly, you can plan for better health for you and for your family. The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our community engagement reporting project. To join our public insight network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Lily Havey. She's a Salt Lake City resident. And at uh, age 10, she and her family were rounded up, sent to an internment camp during World War II. Uh, her book is Gasa Gasa Girl Goes to Camp, a Nisei Youth Behind a World War II Fence. Years after this experience, Lily Havey uh, began hearing of soldiers returning from war, experiencing symptoms of PTSD. She felt uh, perhaps that some of the things that she was feeling perhaps could have been or could be PTSD, and she heard that soldiers further worked through some of these issues through art. That's what she started to do, doing watercolors. That grew now into a book which includes those watercolors, photographs, narrative, her experiences, and it's out from University of Utah Press. You're welcome to join this conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495 or email is upraxcess at gmail.com. We have another six or seven minutes left in the program. Lil Habe, I wonder if you'd uh, read us uh, one last uh, selection from the book. This is uh, page 116 and 117. Uh, first describe the, the, the watercolor here. Well, the watercolor has a young girl crying because she can't, she's locked up. She can't go beyond the barbed wire. And she watched, I watched uh, the rabbits hop freely in and out of the barbed wire. You know, it didn't mean anything to them. In the painting, the rabbits are white, but that's an artistic license because if I had painted them brown, you couldn't have seen them. 
But in the background of this painting are teeny little vignettes of the camp, of a dust storm, of the lights, imaginary lights, really, of Kansas, of the barracks, um, a few sunflowers, and so forth. But I like this uh, painting. I kept it instead of giving it to the documentary arts uh, because it has such meaning for me. It's called Only My Freedom. Winter in Amachi was sometimes gentle, often brutal, but always amazing. The first winter began with a chill suspended in the air. The sky was gray and featureless, a studied watercolor wash. A few small flakes flitted in midair, dancing as if unable to make up their minds, then floated to the ground. The flakes, weightless, melted instantly on my palm. I glimpsed the fleeting crystal on the back of my hand. The flakes wavered before they touched the ground and disappeared. As I stood there, they fell faster and clung to my clothes and feathered the sagebrush. Soon the snow fell in clusters. I went inside and watched it temper the angles of the barracks and glaze the windows. A gentle wind sculpted the snow into soft mounds. The desert was transformed into wispy cotton candy, swollen mochi, bloated meringues. The monotonous gray was layered with a soft sheen, muted by the golden reflections of a, of a late afternoon sun, trying bravely to push aside the gray clouds. I whipped at the snow with my feet to the end of our block and looked toward the vastness of Kansas smothered by the same white blanket. Jackrabbits hopped through the barbed wire fence, oblivious of the armed guards, nibbling at the scraps the mess cook left for them. I crept closer and tried to coax one near. For a second, it looked at me, then scampered away. Come on, it seemed to say, follow me. I watched as it tracked black prints in the snow. I envy you, Mr. Rabbit, I told them. You're free. You can hop to Kansas if you wish. I yearned for this place I had never seen and barely knew about, but it lay beyond the barbed wires, beyond the reaches of the searchlight. It symbolized nirvana, the promised land. In 1998, there was an Amachi camp reunion. My son Michael and I went two days before the official celebration to visit the camp. In our rental car, we stopped at the entrance where a wooden sign pointed to the road where long ago I had bid my father goodbye. The road that I had last seen 53 years ago. I used to stand by the barbed wire fence and wish I could squeeze through the fence like the rabbits to Kansas, I told Michael. The state line's only 15 miles away, Michael said, and turned the car around. We drove away from Amachi and soon spied a sign displaying a huge sunflower Welcome to Kansas, it beckoned. We drove for another mile. You've been to Kansas now, Michael said. What could I reply? Thank you, wasn't enough. Hmm. So uh, Kansas, I get still stirred up emotions in you. It rep represented freedom during that time. <laughs> it, re re it represented freedom. Yeah. I, I would let, stand there at the fence and look over there and think, you know, that must be a, 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 great, a great place to be. Mm. 
We just have about a minute left. Uh, I wonder uh, just uh, quickly have you comment on on something that you wrote which struck me. It's near the end of the book. You're being released from Hamachi and heading out to another unknown. You have this sort of feeling of, of disconnect again. And you write, I was still considered part of the enemy. Only now, according to one government assessment, <laughs> we were hardworking and diligent, not sneaky and yellow-bellied. It, it must have been a very confusing time. Well, it was. And um, the posters that I saw depicting us before the war, you know, we were slant-eyed, we had buck, buck teeth, and we were the enemy, and we were going to invade Japan, and there were bombs showing, and uh, the American soldier was there with a, a gun pointed toward this buck person. And then all of a sudden, uh, even in the newspapers, you know, we were told that we were very diligent, that we would be welcome back, and it was... Um, I know my, my. I remember my father making some comment about, yeah, they they just do anything to, uh, for their benefit, for for their own benefit, or something something like that. Mm. That the government would do that. Well, we are out of time. Much more that we could talk about, and uh, you'll have to read the book to to get the rest of the story. Gasa Gasa Girl goes to camp. A Nisei youth behind a World War II fence. Lily Havy is the author. Um, by the way, after World War II, her family, as we learned, moved to Salt Lake City. She graduated from New England Conservatory of Music, pursued an MFA at the University of Utah Taught High School for 13 years before establishing a stained glass business. So uh, a full life after the war, of course. Um, and we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Thank you. And join us again tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for tuning in today. Are you a discerning music fan? Bad songs about the Irish smiles, uh, what you got, the Tura and the Lura, and more Lura. I mean, it's crazy, sung by men with high voices. Tired of the musically uninteresting? Want me to sing some of that to you here? Yeah, maybe later. How much later? Later, later. Okay. Or the overly earnest? Write songs, try to make the world a better place. There's a contradiction there, partner. We'll have you singing a different tune this weekend. Saturday evening at 6 and Sunday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. This is Linda Kirvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Utah has neither snapping turtles nor snapping shrimp, but we do have snapping grasshoppers. Their loud, crackling sound punctuates summer hikes along open canyon slopes and rocky mountain ridges. Like other bandwing grasshoppers, they are named for the arcs of muted color across their hind wings. But it is the male's insistent racket that draws our attention. A snap results when a stout vein of their hind wings is flexed between two positions. That flexure alternately stretches and relaxes the membrane between the veins, something like an umbrella being popped open and then folded. The vein flexure generates an audible snap, like a dog's training clicker. The grasshopper's loopy flight generates a train of snaps. Crepitating cicadas have a similar means of sound production. They click from a perch on a plant stem.
Their clicking has filled the air of northern Utah this summer. As with cicadas, it is the male bandwing grasshopper that snaps to woo a mate. He displays solitarily during flight. The longer advertisement, the better, apparently. Hopefully, an attracted female will meet him in the air. Sadly for the male, most of the time, no female responds, and he lands unrequited. There, the previously conspicuous male seems to silently vanish. So perfectly does his mottled tan camouflage match bare ground. After resting a bit, he launches again to resume his crackling display. Species of bandwing grasshopper differ in their snapping displays, which a female no doubt appreciates. But for you and I, it is enough to know that we are hearing snapping grasshoppers on a warm day's hike. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you so much for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.